What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Welcome to McIntyre's, a new place for the takeout. Happy to be here. Our special guest this week, Dave Wasserman, who is a senior editor at the Cook Political Report. What we're going to talk about is a topic very important in Washington now and will be for the remainder of this calendar year and all of next year. What is that? Redistricting. Why does that matter? Well, because it decides for the next, in most states, 10 years, in a couple of states, only five years, what the district lines will be for every House district in the country. And from that flows, of course, majority control of the House of Representatives, possibly determined by the next midterm election. Dave Wasserman, welcome to the program. It's great to have hey, you. Hey, thanks, Major. It's, it's great to be here. I would like to point out that even though redistricting is typically a backroom process, we are in the front of the house at McIntyre's right now, right. <laughs> and uh, there is no cigar smoke in the air. No, there is not. Is that process still even relevant as a terminology for redistricting, or is it mostly a, pro- a, a public-facing or a vi- more visible process than it used to be? You know, it's, it's really fascinating how it changes every 10 years. Uh, when I signed up for a Twitter account in 2009, I signed up for at redistrict because no one else had taken it. Right. And uh, it didn't seem like it was top of mind for for many average citizens, even though people generally know what gerrymandering is. I think there's been an explosion in public interest and participation in the process uh, this time around, largely driven on the left because there was, you know, perception mostly true after 2011 that gerrymandering was responsible for Republican dominance in the House and in a lot of state legislatures. They had a great political cycle in 2010 in the first Obama midterm. They took over 600 legislative seats away from Democrats and got to redraw almost five times as many congressional districts in 2011. So Democrats were aggrieved and they started agitating for reform. Uh, there's been an explosion in the number of, um, of publicly available mapping tools that can enable citizens to at least pretend that that they they get to draw the maps right, right. Uh, and so we've got a whole subculture of of nerds on Twitter, right. uh, a, a whole array of of non- and we welcome all yeah. subculture of nerds on this program. The takeout, all variety of subculture of nerds, especially those with redistricting in mind. Oh yeah, and you know I, I used to think I was pretty good at this. I've I've got kids who are you know half my age who are in high school who are running circles around me when it comes to to uh, forecasting maps and 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 analyzing in real time how things are playing out with with changes. So 
that's a that's a new evolution. And for the benefit of the audience, the way a district is drawn determines not only its geographical look on the map, but who's in and who's out. And so, in a certain respect, political figures are choosing their voters as opposed to the voters choosing their political representatives. In some respects, that's true. And and. In most states, this is still a partisan-led process, and so the parties aren't wanting to unilaterally disarm. They want to choose voters who are going to support their candidates in as many races, as as many districts as possible. And this can be self-perpetuating, because keep in mind that the state legislature is responsible for drawing new maps in over 30 states. And what that means is state legislature, if they get to draw the map for their own body and they re-entrench their own power every 10 years, they can draw the map 10 years from now, even if the state has potentially turned against them a little bit. We're seeing that in Georgia right now, where you've got a Republican legislature that's passing highly advantageous maps, even though Joe Biden won the state and the state sent two Democrats to the Senate last year. And I mentioned that this has implications for the next midterm election. That's partly true, but it could have implications for the entire next decade. That's why these maps matter so much. Oh, for sure. And look, these maps have the power to predetermine political outcomes in November in maybe over 90 percent of districts around the country. And there are a couple of reasons for that. And, and, you know, there's kind of kind of this common narrative Uh, I would say it's a borderline myth that advances in software technology have made gerrymandering more powerful. Well, really, the power, you know, the ability we've had to crack and pack voters and, and, you know, split precincts down to the block level, that's basically been the same since the late 1980s. What's changed is where voters live. We have an unprecedented geographic polarization in the electorate right now where Americans are are, uh, essentially they, they... want to live in places where the vast majority of their neighbors and friends are going to agree with their political and cultural values. And so, we, you know, in the 2020 election, um, only um, 41% of voters lived in, in counties that were within 20 points in the presidential election. Keep in mind, back in 1992, 61% of voters lived in, in counties that were somewhat competitive. So, you know, when we've got deeply red and deeply blue neighborhoods, it makes it easier for the partisans who are in charge of these maps to uh, to slice and dice the electorate in ways that polarize districts. And the, the biggest victim in all of this is competition. Right. And there are a couple of books that talk about this. One is slightly dated, but it's a fascinating look at this geographic sorting. It's called The Big Sort. Right. It's a great, great book. Another book is called Identity Crisis. Both of these things talk about how we have completely on our own. No one has ordered us to do this. The parties haven't told us to move. There hasn't been some executive order or governor's mandate. Well, you're going to have to move over here. No, we've all done this ourselves. We have relentlessly and intentionally sorted ourselves by geography, by neighborhood, by zip code into such a way that quite by our own actions, we've kind of pre-gerrymandered ourselves or pre-gerrymandered our neighborhoods. Yeah, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that we've got, you know, two Americas that don't really want to live in the same country that much anymore. And don't understand one another. Have some fundamental gulfs between their common understanding of what the American experience is or ought to be. 
Right. And this, you know, we could probably spend a whole hour on the question yes, of, could. of information ecosystems and how the media, um, you know, um, disseminates information out, out into the ether uh, through different colored glasses. But it is important you know, to point out you know, the, the remaining independents or, or I should say voters who, who don't who aren't rabid partisans, who don't eat, sleep and breathe politics every day, but still vote. Mm-hmm. Those voters are still, you know, depending on where they live, kind of trapped in this information ecosystem of, of you know, the people they're friends with on Facebook are predominantly sharing one point of view, right? And so they're getting a view of the world that I think um, is results in an informational lean where communities grow even redder and even bluer over time. And when that's the, the case, then you're, you're bound to, to end up with fewer swing districts than you had before, regardless of the lines to begin with. But it also makes it easier for for gerrymandering to happen. It magnifies the power of gerrymandering. And I want our audience, because some uh, may not remember or may have never learned what the term gerrymander actually means. We throw it around all the time on this topic. Explain it. Yeah. So uh, Governor Elbridge Gerry, back in the early 19th century in Massachusetts, wanted to pass a plan that uh, that would highly advantage um, his, his party and uh, it, it actually didn't end up um, going quite as intended but the resulting district was part of a, a famous uh, political cartoon that labeled it uh, a salamander and um, actually we should be saying gerrymander right and because the, the the district itself if you kind of overlaid the salamander that's kind of what it looked like and it should be a gerrymander but gerrymander that's close enough but that's the idea of using political power to draw a line of a district in such a way that it looks either distorted or is not contiguous and therefore is somehow suspect that's the uh, that's the essence yeah and and we've moved beyond salamanders now (laughs) we've got upside down praying mantises and rabbits on skateboards and uh, in, in fact, Maryland's third district, a federal judge the other year, likened to a broken-winged pterodactyl lying prostrate across the road. Now, that's a metaphor for you. That's why you're at the takeout, ladies and gentlemen. Dave Wasserman's our special guest, senior editor of the Cook Political Report. Lots more on redistricting and its implications coming up. Segment two, just a second. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. The happy sounds you hear around us, McIntyre's. We're in Woodley Park. That's just a teeny bit north of downtown Washington, D.C. Dave Wasserman, senior editor of Cook Political Report, is our special guest. Dave, what is the Cook Political Report for those in my audience who may not know of its importance and centrality to the discussion of politics in Washington? Well, we're a nonpartisan newsletter analyzing congressional elections and gubernatorial races. We've been around uh, since 1984 when Charlie Cook founded uh, founded the publication. And uh, it was Charlie who came up with the whole rating system of whether races lean Democratic or are likely Republican. And, and now that's 
part of the common nomenclature in town, but uh, we interview a lot of congressional candidates. And, and, uh, you know, when I first started in this role 15 years ago, it was really a revolving door of of candidates coming through our offices, trying to convince us why they were going to win. And we were kind of the consumer reports. We were the appraisers. And uh, I'd say that pace has slowed, especially in the pandemic, but right. still trying to get to as many people on Zoom and at the party committees as we can. And why did you choose house races as your area of expertise? It's interesting, Major. You know, when I was 11, uh, there was a glitch in our cable TV system. Um, I was growing up in New Jersey, and uh, for, for a couple of weeks, we only got two channels. We got QVC and C-SPAN. And I got really sick of watching items for sale on QVC. And so I, this is a true story. I, I w- went over to C-SPAN. I've right. always been a compulsive list maker. And so mm-hmm. what I did was I, I, I turned it into a fun game. I'd write down the name, party, and state of everyone whose Chiron came across C-SPAN, right? right. And um, pretty soon it was like collecting Pokemon. Um, I wanted to collect all 435. And then I started going to the library and reading biographies and the almanac of american politics which i couldn't check out of the library so i had to sit in the reference room and then i i you know started volunteering on campaigns and and uh, i started reading uh charlie cook's columns in national journal and Stu Mm -hmm. rothenberg's columns in roll call to try and see what was going on in these races so yeah i was just I, i was a geek for it and still am so i covered congress for many many years off and on for the better part of 15 years and the uh, chambers are very distinct. I love the House of Representatives, the People's House, because it does feel to me and always has felt to me that the will of the people does flow through that institution. And therefore, those who come to Washington in service of their district are one part of that larger national conversation in a way that a senator simply isn't. The Senate has a lot of great qualities. It's a hugely important legislative branch. But the House, to me, feels like the place through which America's voice runs first and sometimes loudest. What's your just general sense of that? Yeah, you know, sometimes it really does need the Senate to act as that cooling saucer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but look, every two years, all four, 435 seats are up for grabs. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the primaries have overtaken general elections as the most important determinants of who occupies those seats. And redistricting, as I alluded to earlier, it really does play a role in driving down the number of competitive districts. And so, so far, from our vantage point today, there are 20 states that have either passed new congressional maps or are, have maps that are awaiting a, a governor's signature. And in those, uh, those states, uh, so far, the number of, of considerably Republican districts, districts that voted for Trump by more than five points, have, has gone up from 84 to 96, or up 14 points. Um, the number of, of safely Democratic districts, or I should say Democratic-leaning at least, uh, uh, that voted for Biden by more than five points has gone up from 58 to 63, so up 9 percent. But the number of districts that are between those partisan 40-yard lines voted by less than five points for either Biden or Trump has gone down from 24 to 10, or a 58 percent decline. So I think by the time this process is over, we could see the number of competitive seats winnowed by something like a third. And what that does is it, it means the House is de- decided by a very narrow sliver of, of the 435 districts that are genuinely competitive. And when that's true, you've got parties pouring tens of millions of right. dollars into, into each of these races 
but they tend not to care who gets nominated in the rest of them, which is how you end up with a lot of very polemic candidates who, who only have the incentive of winning a primary. And how do you win a primary these days? By saying or do something that goes viral. Right. And so I expect that we are going to see more candidates who fit that description. And that's a really important point about the incentive structures in this political environment. The incentive structures to win a primary is, as you said, to get viral. And you do not get viral by being vanilla. That's right. You become viral by being polemic or outrageous, or you're right. doing something to agitate either an image or mannerism or rhetoric, or all three. Well, we saw this in the 2016 presidential race. And actually, one of the reasons I love house races, and I've always loved them, is because they can tell us things about what the electorate is looking for well in advance of presidential primaries. And you know, I remember back in 2010, 12, 14, we were getting a lot of Republican candidates who were running as outsiders. They were business people who, you know, they may have been running for a safe Republican seat against a crowded field of state legislators and mayors who had climbed the political ladder their whole careers. All of a sudden, you had a self-funding business person who came in and said, you know what, to hell with all these guys. I'm not beholden to anyone. I'm going to shake up Washington. And they were winning their races. And in retrospect, that should have been a big clue about the potential for what could happen in 2016 in the Republican primaries. What I noticed, what I've noticed, um, you know, in in the more recent election in 2020, one of the reasons why Republicans were successful at in the House level is they nominated a lot of women and minorities, candidates who did not look like Trump. I think that could signal an openness on the part of Republicans down the road to nominate a, a black candidate for president right. or 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 a woman or for vice president for sure. Sure. So I want to ask you, uh, before we get into some of the granular aspects of this conversation, states, districts, and things like that, what do you think right now is the quantitative and qualitative value of former President Trump's endorsement in these Republican primaries? Because you said a moment ago, primaries determine a lot of these races. How big a deal is that? Yeah, you know... uh, Fealty to Donald Trump is probably the the number one theme in Republican primaries today, and and I I, I say that about, mostly about these these races for safe Republican open seats mm-hmm. because, uh, or you know when it comes to the Republicans who voted for impeachment, they're automatically in a bind with right. a Republican base where Trump has ninety percent approval. You get into the more c- competitive districts, which. as I alluded to, is a smaller slice. And maybe that's less the case. Maybe the parties really are recruiting people that um, will have broader appeal. But for the most part, um, I think that's that's tended to make uh, Republican primaries, frankly, a little less interesting Mm -hmm. because they're less issue driven and more um, more loyalty driven. And as you mentioned, uh, President Trump can, former President Trump can draw a lot of attention to any given race with his endorsement or, in the case of Liz Cheney, by circling a huge red circle around that race and say, I want Liz Cheney defeated. Do you think there is any evidence right now that suggests that race is heading one way, one way or the other? I'd be shocked if she's renominated. I, I, I think most Republicans in Wyoming around the, and around the country view her as a Democrat. Um, I think there is, even though she has a deeply conservative and, and by many standards on policy, pro-Trump voting record. 
Major, I think the the conversation that we're having, you know, in in that vein here is pretty disconnected from the conversation that Republican primary voters are having. Um, I don't think there's any forgiveness for the anti-Trump, um, you know, outspokenness that she, uh, that has become her hallmark this year. Uh, she might have a ceiling in a Republican primary of something like 25 or 30 percent. And that's why we're seeing retirements among those 10 Republicans, Adam Kinzinger, Anthony Gonzalez. You know, when Gonzalez in Ohio announced that he wouldn't be running for reelection, he called Trump a, a cancer on the party in the country. Well, if that cancer is eating anything, it's the remaining resistance to Trump in the party. That is the voice of Dave Wasserman, the senior editor of the Cook Political Report. We are at McIntyre's. That's a happy sound to hear around us. We're going to continue our conversation about redistricting. The first thing I'm going to ask you, Dave, on the other side of this break is what's foundational to redistricting is the census. And if it was a good or bad census, that answer coming up in a second. I'm Major Garrett. Segment three of the takeout in just one second. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Dave Wasserman, senior editor, Cook Political Reporter, is our special guest. Uh, the topic is redistricting America's political future, at least writ large, through the crucible, if you will, of the House of Representatives. So to draw district lines every decade, you have to have a census first. That's basic civics. We probably all remember that. There was a lot of commentary about this census how valid is it? Are there still critics who believe that it itself sets the foundation for these lines in some way, in a skewed or skewed way or unfair way? Yeah, there's no such thing as a perfect census. And the parties you know, criticize the census for different reasons every 10 years. Republicans want district lines to be drawn based on citizens, not the full count of the popula- of the resident population. Democrats believe that the census chronically undercounts uh, residents of, of color. And keep in mind that, you know, this census officially uh, is a count of, of uh, who lived where on April 1st, 2020. And yet, you know, we're going to be drawing lines for the next 10 years that um, are pegged to, to that date, even though people move around a lot. And one of the the uh, um, incur- ter- interpretations that the Supreme Court has handed down of one person, one vote is that district should be equal within uh, a person um, in, in all but a handful of states. And that, that makes it complicated for, for map makers to divide up census blocks one way or the other. The most fascinating fact from the census uh, to me was that New York missed out on the 435th and final seat in the House uh, to, to Minnesota by just 26 residents. And, of course, what happened in New York over that couple weeks before the census date that didn't really happen anywhere else where, well, a lot of people died of COVID. And so it, it's amazing what a difference just a handful of census forms and what that initial um, breakout 
uh, made. So for the audience, just want to repeat this because it's really important. New York lost the opportunity to have an additional congressional seat by 26 residents to Minnesota. That's right. At a time when many people in New York, not many, but a, a, a not insubstantial number of people died in New York of the coronavirus. Right. Yeah. These two things merged at exactly the same time with the consequence that for the next 10 years, there'll be one less voice in New York than there would have been in the House of Representatives. That's absolutely true. And reapportionment is, is, a, is a big deal every 10 years. And, that, you know, people get confused by, okay, what's reapportionment and then what's redistricting? Well, re- reapportionment is the process by which the census determines how many seats in Congress each state should get and then therefore how many electoral votes they get. And so Texas was the big winner, picking up two seats this time. Uh, there were five other states that picked up a seat each. So you had Florida, North Carolina, Colorado, Montana, and Oregon. You have seven states that are losing a district each. And so uh, you've got California losing a, a seat for the first time since statehood. You've got New York, as I mentioned, West Virginia, Ohio, Illinois, um, Michigan, Pennsylvania. So there are a few states that, that have to suffer every 10 years. West Virginia going down from three to just two members. Well, back 60 years ago, it had six members. Right. So uh, it's, it's really amazing how our population patterns can, can drive representation. When you look at what's happened to date, are there big headlines that our audience should know when they think about the, f- the title flow of redistricting so far? So there are a couple things that make this round different from 10 years ago. Uh, and, you know, there, as we alluded to earlier, there's been this drive for reform. Well, what that's led to is there are 10 states that have independent or bipartisan redistricting commissions that handle this job. And that sounds, you know, wonderful to a lot of people. Wow, we're taking the power out of the hands of these, these dirty politicians and we're giving it to average citizens, right? Well, not all commissions are created equal. So California, the biggest state, uh, it has a very citizen-driven process that's forbidden from taking into account uh, uh, where incumbents live or partisan data. And I I think that's actually kind of the gold standard for how to do this. Mm -hmm. Colorado adopted a a commission that worked well this time around. They added a a new district to the state that's highly competitive. The ice is here. Yeah. It's uh, one of their criteria is is competitive districts. But then you've got other commissions that haven't worked out so well. Um, And Virginia, for example, they passed a reform in 2020, setting up a 16-member commission with eight Democrats and eight Republicans. Well, there aren't any unaffiliated members. There's no tie-breaking members. And what did that lead to? It was like you had scorpions in a bottle. They weren't about to come together and pass a, a map with a majority vote. And so they deadlocked. And now the job is going to the state Supreme Court. Saw basically the same thing happen, slightly different story in Washington state. So this time you're going to have more courts involved in the process than ever before. They're going to be resolving disputes and deadlocks um, in places like Virginia and Washington, but also in states that have split control between governors of one party and a legislature of another. So Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, Louisiana. Is that going to in any way, shape or form delay primaries or make this ultimate process more difficult? I mean, 
these legal challenges, could they bog things down? By the way, that, that was the ice being delivered in the bar behind us here at McIntyre's, just <laughs> setting the place and the sounds again. Could this, could this bollocks up the whole system, these court challenges? Yeah, I think it's going to delay a number of states' primaries. And we've already seen a couple states that have moved back their, their primaries from where they originally um, would have them. And I, I suspect that because neither Congress nor the U.S. Supreme Court have stepped in to erect any guardrails up against gerrymandering, you know, the Supreme Court in a landmark case in 2019 said you can't even bring a federal claim of partisan gerrymandering before a court because... You know, courts have have no way of or have no business handling this, uh, or at least federal ones do. But state supreme courts, state courts, could see their role more clearly as the last uh, backstop against the most extreme excesses of parties who want to just bludgeon the other side. Mm-hmm. And so, really, the only thing stopping one-party states from completely pulverizing the minorities is if a state Supreme Court says, all right, guys, this violates the state constitution. Had it not been for successful Democratic lawsuits to overturn Republican gerrymanders in North Carolina, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Florida in the last five years, Democrats would not be in the majority today. That's how critical a lot of these court cases will be. And the two states that I'm watching the closest to see whether state courts green light Republican plans, Ohio and North Carolina. Um, you've got Republicans in, in North Carolina who want to convert an eight to five Republican map into a map that could give them as many as 11 out of 14 seats. So 11 to three. Wow, that would be a pretty big jump. And yet the state Supreme Court has an, a narrow Democratic majority that could potentially potentially review that. Ohio, Republicans have drawn a map that uh, could potentially give them 13 out of the state's 15 seats, up from um, 12 out of 16 this past decade. Will the Ohio Supreme Court, who has a, which has a, has a chief justice who has previously expressed her disdain for gerrymandering, will they uphold that? These court cases could drag on well beyond the redistricting period itself, well into the decade. We saw a number of maps change in the late 2010s. And any variables or unknowns around district lines influence who runs and who doesn't run. And those decisions, and I want my audience to understand this, really are made this time of year. People who decide to run and mount a campaign for a House seat in the next year typically make their decisions between October and February of the year before. That's right. And the climate that exists then has a great deal to do with the outcome almost a year later. And that's one of the reasons all the conversation in Washington right now has been, wow, it's a pretty terrible climate for Biden and the Democrats, meaning are you going to stay or are you going to go? And who wants to jump in? All those things are made a little bit less certain by these insecurities or variabilities with courts and House district lines. That's right. And so you've got a lot of Democrats who are looking at a double whammy of Biden's low approval ratings and the results from Virginia and New Jersey, which if you were to superimpose those results on the House as a whole, you could be talking about Democrats losing 50 House seats. Uh, And then you've got redistricting. A lot of incumbents, longtime incumbents, they would have to run in potentially less favorable districts or at a very minimum would have to meet a lot of new constituents and sell themselves to a lot of, of, of new voters. That's not easy. So it, this can be a logical time for a lot of incumbents to retire. Right now, we're at 17 Democrats 
and 10 Republicans who are not running for re-election, I expect that Democratic number to go over 30. That is, the, that is the voice of Dave Wasserman, senior editor at the Cook Political Report, segment for The Takeout coming up in just one second. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Our thanks to McIntyre's, our host restaurant this week. Dave Wasserman is our special guest, senior editor of the Cook Political Report. So you, let's go over those retirement numbers again. Because of this atmosphere, the double whammy effect you talked about, how many do you expect on the Democratic side who are House members to call it quits, retire? We could be talking over 30 Democrats. Implications for that for the House majority. Dire. Yeah, look, there's no I, way to paint a pretty picture around 30 retirements. Yeah. You know, uh, right now, I think Democrats odds of keeping their majority in the House are probably south of 10 percent, south of 10 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are some Republicans. I don't need to tell you this. You know this better than I do, who are looking like 50, 60, maybe 70 seats. Do you think that's over amping what happened? Because it seems to me, Dave Wasserman, that Republicans in 2020 not named Donald Trump especially in House races, clawed back some of the races lost in 2018. And I wonder if that will mitigate how far they can gain in 2022. Yeah, I don't think Republicans are going to pick up 50 House seats. They might be able to get to 40. Keep in mind, Republicans are starting from a, a higher floor yes. than in 2010. Because keep in mind, in, in 2010, Republicans needed to pick up 40 seats to take back the House. This time, they only need five seats to take back that. So, you know, a 30-seat a gain could actually result in a larger Republican majority than the one in 2010 when they picked up 63 seats. So, um, you know, what, what Kevin McCarthy and Republicans are looking for is a true governing majority. They've watched Democrats in the House struggle, struggle, around. struggle. You know, they have no votes to give pretty much. They, they may have three, depending on who's alive, right? right and and right. who's able to, to vote. Uh, and Republicans know that they have a faction of members who they can't necessarily count on for important votes, the Freedom Caucus. You've also got to divide between the more conservative elements and the Main Street Republicans remaining in the House. And so Republicans want some breathing room to be able to, to, to pass basic governing measures. Or blocking measures, as they might interpret them, because they're not going right. to govern with President Biden in, in office. Uh, or if, if there's a Repu even if there's a Republican Senate, which there might be, that's going to be blocked by President Biden. They might have to get together on a couple of things, but keeping your majority together and not having to go through this massive, sweaty and sweat inducing process of trying to count every single vote, which House Democrats have to do on anything that's non-controversial because you just don't have any votes to spare. There are no freebies. That's right. That's right. And for Democrats in our audience, of which there are many, is there any reason for them not to pull their hair out? Is there any way to look at this map or maps as they're developing the political climate and the decisions that are going to have to be made in the next four or five months and say there is anything other than a disaster on the horizon? Is there anything that they can look to 
from your vantage point that could be even remotely optimistic? It's possible that we could be at a low point for, for Joe Biden. Uh, things can and do change in so politics. So the White right? House I mean, hopes that's the, tr- that's the case. I mean, remember where it's we were. It's been sliding since mid-August. Sure, but you know, re- remember where we were in, in February of 2020 when Joe Biden's presidential aspirations were on life support after coming in fourth place in Iowa and fifth place in New Hampshire. Now, obviously, being in charge at a time when there are massive problems facing the country, um, some of which the administration has, has not made better, uh, they that's a different circumstance for sure. And it's harder to turn around. But if there is one kind of silver lining, it could be that you know, Democrats have been doing better lately with the highest propensity turnout voters, which are college graduates. They tend to make up a larger share of the vote in midterm elections. Now, we saw in Virginia, the Trump base is yep. really amped up. Right. And if they remain so in 2022, it's just going to be really hard for Democrats in any remotely competitive district. And that's in, that's instructive at a couple of levels. It wasn't as if Democratic turnout in that Virginia governor's race was terrible. It was higher than it was in any previous governor's race. It was a high turnout election on both sides. And I think that's one of the things that we are we tend to miss or gloss over is that we are in, for whatever set of reasons, a high turnout, high engagement era of American federal politics. Maybe not at local races or state races, but at the federal level, we are engaged. We are showing up and we are voting. Well, when both parties view elections as existential to the country, you're going to end up with high turnout. So, you know, Terry McAuliffe's campaign in Virginia, they were expecting 2.8 to 3.1 million people to vote. Well, there were 3.3 million people who voted and the Republican in Virginia won. So this old adage of when everyone turns out, Democrats win, you know, we can't be sure of that anymore or that demographics will doom Republicans. Right. Republicans have done better lately with Hispanic voters. They're doing a better job communicating with the voters who are on the margins of political engagement than Democrats. We all remember the phrase, I know you do, Dave, I certainly do, because I spent a lot of time covering not only then-Senator Obama's campaign, but his presidency. Demographics are destiny, and that was sort of a way the Democrats thought about their long-term future in American federal politics, national politics. Be careful what you turn into a metaphor and to a truism. It may not actually happen. That's right. And look... uh Right now, the education polarization that defines American politics, um, you know, Democrats might be tempted to say, well, as more people graduate college, we're just going to, it's going to become a massive advantage. Well, Democrats um, still, they can't count on, on that yet. Um, we're, we're noticing that Democrats still have more room to fall among blue collar voters. And Hispanic voters in particular are beginning to vote more like the rest of the country. We've got about a minute 45 to go. And I, I, we've had talked about things at a granular level, very specific state court. If there are a couple of things that you think are really interesting about trend lines or dimensions of American politics that we haven't yet got to, I want to give you the chance to run with it. Well, one, to, just to tie together a couple mm-hmm. of things we've okay. talked about. Democrats uh, are probably going to come out on the slightly losing end of redistricting because a lot of the bluer states that uh, that are big states have redistricting commissions. And so when you think about the, the, those 10 commission states I mentioned, California, New Jersey, um, Virginia, uh, 
Colorado, Washington State. These are these are the states where reforms have succeeded, but at the same time, Democrats are, are playing with one hand tied behind their back as a result. So you're going to get uh, Republican maps out of out of a variety of states like Georgia, North Carolina. Too aggressive to say they are in part reforming themselves into the minority? Partially. Uh, and at the same time, those are the states. In addition, you know, Michigan and Arizona are two other states with commissions that are genuinely competitive. Those are the states where we can expect the disproportionate number of close races to be next year. And that and those are states where I'd keep my eye on. That is the voice of Dave Wasserman, senior editor of the Cook Political Report. Folks, I want to let you know when you're in Washington and you want to know what's happening at the House level, this is the person you read, you call them on the phone or you book him as a guest on your show, which is what I've done. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. We thank you for joining us, as always. For those on CBSN, hello there. And on our podcast platforms, stay tuned, as you do each and every week. To the Takeout Outtake Especial, I'm Major Garrett. Dave Wasserman, it's been great to have you. We'll see you next week, folks. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. You already knew that. Dave Wasserman is our special guest, senior editor of the Cook Political Report. McIntyre's is our host restaurant. We thank them. We're just so happy to be back out in restaurants. We're following all the protocols. We're doing all the right things, folks. But it's just nice to have this show back in its atmospheric home, which is a restaurant with a little bit of happy sound around us, a little music, a little bar, whatever we've got going for us. It's just great to be out and about once again. So, Dave, we have three threshold questions. We've asked each and every guest on this program, and I want you to take them in whichever order you prefer. And we'll get to a couple other things, but I want to get these three ones right here now. So, uh, most influential book in your life, if you have one, can be anything. Uh, all-time favorite movie or one of your favorite movies. And if you're going to be on a long flight or a long drive, and you're really going to dig some music. I mean, really, really get into it. What kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? <laughs> uh, all right. I'm a backwards thinker, so I'm going to do this in reverse thinker, order. Um, I'm really into, into music that, like, most people aren't. Um, I, I'm a big trad nerd. Um, I'm a big fan of traditional fiddle styles um i play the fiddle okay and i actually um am in the process of trying to revive a music camp in maine um in my spare time so um in all your spare time yes yeah getting getting together like you know groups of pickers around a fire whether it's fiddle players banjos guitars flutes whatever that that's just my happy place Mm -hmm. and the cool thing about that kind of music is because it's very niche and very few people like it. You can get to know your favorite artists and become friends with them. And so that's what I've tried to do. And I try and take lessons from, uh, from people whose musicianship I admire. When I was a uh, reporter in Amarillo, Texas, very early in my career, I went to a place called Turkey, Texas. 
Bob Wills and the Texas Travelers came through, which if you are from Texas or you know anything about this kind of music, oh, yeah. you know they are absolute legends. And I heard Bob Wills say of one of his co-fiddle players, that boy can saw. Is that a phrase <laughs> that's still used? I hope that someone uses it about me someday. Okay. But yeah, I, you know, I've tried to learn a few Bob Wills tunes and, uh, and yeah. It's it's really if you can saw that means you can play a fiddle really well right high end right you're a high end fiddle player yeah you know I, I I've even at a couple of like of speeches on politics only very friendly audiences but like it's close to Thanksgiving I'll, I'll I'll trot out turkey in the straw and try and get the crowd rubbed up very good very good yeah. uh, one of your favorite movies or your all time favorite movie so one movie that captivated me this is so this is like so geeky but back when i was 12 or 13 there was this um thing on pbs um it it was a documentary called a perfect candidate about the 1994 virginia senate race between chuck robb and ollie north this movie just had such a it, it pulled back the curtain on all of the machinations of campaigns and it it had me hooked it also was one of the big reasons why i wanted to go to college in virginia um, I grew up in New Jersey, and I had seen um, this movie about the Virginia Center race, and I had also seen Larry Sabato on TV. So mm-hmm. that's all I needed. Right. So because we love nerds so much here on the show, uh, all nerds, but I just want to go through the sort of uh, typology of a nerd. We'll go, go with a 12-year-old, PBS, documentary. That sort of did it right there. You know, you didn't even need to say anything else, but that all got it. 12-year-old PBS documentary. That puts you in the in the space. Uh, most influential book. You know, it's it's hard to narrow it down to to just one. Um, you know, I I really would have to say that, you know, Michael Barone's description of districts in every almanac of American politics, mm-hmm. it's still the Bible to me. Yes. And uh, and you know, throughout the years it's had a number of of authors and I've been fortunate enough to contribute to, you know, a, a couple of, of editions, but I'm still really intimidated when I, when I try and contribute anything to it because it is just such a high standard. It is. And for those of you who don't know what the Almanac of American Politics is, um, it was the first book of its kind to do something that was available. It just had never been brought together, which is to describe America by congressional district. It's the way the district was drawn then, how it lived then, but its history and what flowed through it. And then all sorts of interesting, fascinating data underneath each congressional district. Then it would have descriptions of governors, and so, but it was one place where you could go and thumb through at any page and immerse yourself in the actual lived political life of this country. It's a brilliant thing, and it's lyrically written. It is a wonderful thing to read. For those of you who care about politics and this country, and how things arise from various geographies, ethnicities, it's a place to go to but start. I, I could add one more. Mm. So, like, uh, one of the guys on C-SPAN who I'd, I'd seen when I was a kid was this, you know, ranting white-haired guy from Vermont named Bernard Sanders. Right. And one time we were at our family friends in Vermont, and I saw his autobiography, Outsider in the House, on a shelf. And so I read that and um, for by Bar Mitzvah. Um, those family friends arranged to have a signed picture congratulating me on becoming a man from Bernie Sanders, which I still have. And so that was long before he was a household name. And, and uh, some people are impressed that, uh, that I have that, even though 
disclaimer, and it's not an indication of personal politics necessarily. But that's one massively cool bit of political memorabilia. Dave Wasserman, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. I'm Major Garrett. Thanks for listening to The Takeout and watching The Takeout Outtake Especial. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.